todo el mundo. Pero eso fue realmente... Welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the documentary, The Ventures, Stars on Guitars. This is your destination for all things rock, where the interviewees include musicians, authors, historians, filmmakers, and more. And now, on to the show. Janice Garza joins me on this episode of Rock and Roll Nightmares to talk about her seven-year stint as an editor at RIP Magazine, which back in the day covered the rock and heavy metal scene. She'll also talk about her collaboration with Lemmy of Motorhead to write his autobiography, White Line Fever, plus her early coverage of bands like Pantera and Guns N' Roses. Janice is also a rock photographer and is currently busy with several new endeavors, which we'll be talking about. Oh, well, welcome to the podcast, Janice. Yeah, thank you. Well, I uh, love your Amazon author page because it's got this badass rocker book that's all sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And then the rest are all about adorable cats. (laughs) So it's such a funny, like, um, combination. Have you ever thought about combining the two things that you love? Maybe writing a book about rock stars and their cats? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, actually, um, a lot, most of the cat books you see on there I actually didn't write them. I was the publisher. Because oh, okay. um, the, res- the two rescued uh, books are actually anthologies where I actually did a uh, um, you know, call for submissions and everything. And I had uh, writers uh, submit their uh, stories and they're all written in the cats from the cat's point of view. And uh, the first one was really successful, which is why I did a second one. And the second one I lost money on, which is why there's not a third one. <laughs> yeah, that's the way it goes sometimes. You know, and, and I, the thing about cats is that they just tend to overtake your life in one way or another. And uh, being a writer and a photographer, that's sort of what uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. lives you over. <laughs> Uh, and uh yeah i mean it's like eventually i'd like to get out of cat world and i do have some escape plans 
<laughs> Good luck on that. Well, you do seem to really immerse yourself in whatever you're doing. And I know that you were the editor of RIP magazine for seven years in the 80s. And that was a magazine. Actually, the, the official title was senior editor because uh, Lon Friend was the editor in chief while I was there. Oh, okay. And, uh, or for most of the time I was there. And, now, what's uh, the difference between those two positions? It's a huge difference. I mean, as senior editor, I didn't have to be there all the time. I actually, it was a part-time position. I just had certain sections of the magazine that I had to take care of. I had to assign writers for the record reviews and for the fresh blood or the, you know, that's what they called it. It was the new band section mm -hmm. and, you know, video section. And I actually created a, another section that was called the Indy 500 while I was there because um, that was like, you know, right. Like the late eighties was when like indie rock and indie metal was becoming extremely popular. And I wanted to be in on that. And, you know, it was just like all the bands that were covered in Indy 500 you know, became famous grunge bands later on. Wow. Now, how did that come about? Were you already a reader of the magazine or did you see an ad or did you meet somebody? Oh, you, you don't need an ad to be in Rip Magazine because uh, you get the, you get in there by reputation. Yeah. Um, oh. I was a journalist. I, I was a music journalist from the mid 80s on. And, uh, you know, I covered everything. I mean, I started off writing for some of the local rags and, uh, you know, was it uh, Rock City News, L.A. Rock Review, uh, you know, and from there I started writing for the L.A. Weekly, you know, doing reviews. And I spent most of my time at clubs like during the eight, during like the most of the 1980s. I was going to clubs every night, sometimes several clubs in one night. I didn't see a movie for like 15 years oh, wow. because I was, busy, <laughs> I was busy going to clubs. and. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So anyway, so I so I went from the regs to the LA Weekly. I was writing uh, for music and photographing for Music Connection. I actually started off as a photojournalist and taking pictures at concerts. And uh, I have a talent for photography. Uh, a lot of people talk about my writing, but I actually do. I'm a pretty good photographer too. I just don't. I never quite had the the fancy equipment to be like a world class photographer, like a Robert John or somebody like that. And uh, so I just like, you know, mo the moment that uh, somebody started paying me for writing, which happened to be Music Connection, I was like, boom, that's what I want to do because I always wanted to be a writer. And uh, sort of the photography fell by the wayside for many years. So uh, Music Connection, the editor at Music Connection, Bud Scapa, who was like my mentor, actually recommended me to the LA Times um, right about the time Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction came out because they had were clueless about metal. I mean, I sat there with Bob Hilburn at the LA Times being interviewed by him. And, you know, he was asking me, so what, what's, what about this band, Guns N' Roses? Can you tell me something about them? I, you know, I don't really know anything. I and mean, then it sounds kind of dumb and all that. I, I had no fear. Yeah, I had no fear. I had, you know, no respect for authority. I just looked at Bob Hilburn, the longtime editor of the LA Times, famous, famous rock critic. I go, look, and I was a nobody, look, goes like this, Rolling Stones, Aerosmith, Guns N' Roses, period. <laughs> <laughs> just like that. And, you know, it's just, and it's funny because it's just like, it's pretty much turned out that way, even though Guns N' Roses were their own, were, were mostly Axel and kind of, 
well, they were all kind of their own worst enemies. And all, all, all those guys almost died at one point or another. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. But, but mostly um, the reason the band didn't have like the long-term respect as um, like the Stones and Aerosmith did, it's all on Axel. I mean, Axel um, was an extremely talented guy who just had a habit of like doing really stupid self-destructive uh, to his career sort of things. So, you know, that's, that's right. what now, happened. Did you interview him or any of, like, I want to know about like some of the bands that you got to interview or interact with back then. Oh man. Well, see, the thing about Rip is that uh, that was really encouraged, which is why I stopped working at, uh, stopped, stopped writing for the LA Times and started working at Rip is uh, the LA Times was very like, staunchly conservative and you had to keep a distance between yourself and the subject and it was very like old school journalism rip was more like hunter s thompson tom wolf just throw you in there and it's just like you you're friends with the band and all that sort of stuff and uh, mm -hmm. so yeah so some of the bands i interviewed uh like <laughs> actually this is one of my favorite um stories of one of the bands i interviewed um several times was cantera and uh, Pantera was really awesome. What, and the way I got turned on to them um, and became the first national journalist, like journalist outside of Texas to get turned on to Pantera was that uh, the record label called me up and asked me to write their bio, which was really cool. So yeah. they said, yeah, well, gee, there's, we're, we've got this record coming out from this band called Pantera. Here's the advanced CD and we are hiring you to do the, the bio. So I said, okay. So I put like Cowboys from Hell on my, you know, I put the tape cassette into the tape player uh -huh. back in those days. And it was the most awesome thing I ever fucking heard. I mean, it, I was, the, the last time I had been that excited was about the Black Crows Shake Your Money Maker. You know, I mean, those were two records that sort of like, you know, sort of exemplified like, you know, my career. And, uh, and I also interviewed the Black Crows too, uh, but yeah, Pantera. So I um, and I interviewed Phil by phone. He was hilarious, and uh, I interviewed the yeah, and I interviewed the other guys too. And they were all really, they're all really cool guys. And uh, so yeah, I like I wound up covering them a lot, and they were just funny and hilarious. And uh, Phil was just all he was so out there. Just okay. How rude can I get with this uh, podcast? <laughs> it's not no holds barred. It's all about rock and roll nightmares. Okay, because so. Phil loves to talk about his dick. <laughs> 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 and uh, yeah, because it's just like, here I'm on the phone with this guy. I'm like, you're hired by the record label. And he's talking about how his dick is bigger than his daddy's dick was. You know, he's probably got to wow. come in. And how did, did you care. work that into the article? <laughs> no. No, I have it on tape. Oh, yeah, it's 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 in the outtakes, but uh, you know, but it was really hilarious. Just he, he no holds barred. He's really it was really interesting, really fun, and it's just like I I I like guys like that. I like guys that are just really outspoken and don't like you know, it just just because I'm a girl or just because I'm a journalist that they'll like you know try and be polite and stuff. I mean, screw that, you know. So anyway, um, and I remember I introduced Phil to Lemmy later on, and that was so much fun because, um, you know, I was at the time, I think I just started working on the book with Lemmy, and uh, it was a foundations forum, this big conference um, for metal music that they had in, uh, 
you know, at various hotels throughout like uh, the 90s. And it was really fun. It was always a party to have the foundations formed. So the first night, I think uh, they had Ozzy playing there and uh, in one of the you know, big ballrooms or whatever. And so everybody was hanging out, all the rockers who knew, you know, every uh, the who's who of the you know, metal music world. And I saw Phil and I knew Phil. So I was like, hey, how's it going? You know, and he was like, yeah, it's going really good. And I... You know, and he was, we started talking about Lemmy and he talked about how much he loved Lemmy. And I saw Lemmy over in the distance and I'd already been working with Lemmy on one thing or another. And um, so Phil was like, oh my God, I just, I want to meet him so bad. I would French kiss that man is what he said. <laughs> and I was like, I'll take you over to meet him. And so I just, I took him over and introduced him to Lemmy. And that was really fun. And uh, yeah, so uh and I actually, um, I was, I think, no, it wasn't the cover story I did for Rip on Pantera. It was, uh, it was uh, one of the, one of the. It was before that I did the cover story. The 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 first really big full feature I did on them that wasn't just a fresh blood was um, I they um, the record label flew me out to Arlington, Texas, where Phil was renting an apartment at the time because that's where the rest of the band lived. And so um, I got to hang out at Phil's apartment for an evening and his girlfriend came over and a couple of friends came over and he had a cat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. A cat named Pick. And uh, yeah, that was that was really fun. And uh, yeah, and I love the brothers, you know, Vinny and, um, and, and, and Dime. They were they're the coolest guys. I mean, it just it, it really guts me that neither of them are around anymore and especially how dime was murdered i mean geez yeah that that's was horrible very rare you know? thankfully rare occurrence and of all people to have that happen to a guy as nice as him i mean yeah. he is the sweetheart he's he wanted nothing more than to like just play music and have a good time and he just lived that it was, it was so tragic so tragic yeah, yeah, it is. But yeah. it's really great that you got to get in on the ground floor with Pantera and watch their evolution. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what that's yeah. a singular experience that not many people get to have. Yeah, I was really lucky. And um, also, you know, I, God, I, I hate to sound like I'm really conceited and stuff, but I write well. <laughs> so I, and, and I, I'm one of those like, like, you know how like sometimes smart kids in school, it's just they sort of skate by because they're, they're so smart and they get kind of lazy. Yeah. I'm kind of like that with writing. I mean, it's just, you know, people throw something at me to write and I'm like, okay, you know, I'll do it. You know, <laughs> I'm not really, uh, um, you know, I, I don't work that hard at it and I'm still pretty good at it. <laughs> Well, that's just a natural talent that you have. And um, mm -hmm. I had White Line Fever, the paperback. I'm not like mm -hmm. a book collector. And then I get so many books that I don't have time to read them. But I finally read it. And it's just such a legendary book um, that everyone's still talking about, even though it came out uh, many years ago. But yeah. I mean, yeah. So how did that collaboration come about with you and Lemmy? The funniest thing, uh, and it, it all boils down to me being a loudmouth, like I did with Bob Hilburn. <laughs> uh -huh. It was the same sort of situation, and it was at a foundations forum where the whole thing started. And um, it wasn't it wasn't the one where I introduced Phil to Lemmy. It was a different one. But I, I actually got to write a couple of bios for Motorhead. Um, somehow I, I interviewed. I was always a Motorhead fan. I mean, like you know, 
one of my favorite shows in the 1980s was uh, seeing uh, Motorhead at the Civic Auditorium. Was it Santa Monica Civic when they were doing the Orgasmatron tour? I mean, I still remember that to this day. And I have photos that I took at that show too. Oh, wow. But, yeah. Anyway, so I'd done, I'd done some work with um, Motorhead doing uh, Rip Story and doing some bios. And so I saw their publicist, Jocelyn, it, in the uh, you know outside the restaurant in the hotel, and I was talking to her about different things, and uh, uh, you know I, of course we we're talking a little bit about Motorhead because that was one of the bands that I worked with her on. So I just said off the top of my head, you know, Lemmy really needs to do an autobiography, and she's like, yeah, he should, and I was like, and I should be the one to write it, <laughs> Good. like that. Sure, I off, like that. Off the top of my head. Yeah, and I just said, yeah, and I should be the one to write it. And she was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, you know, Todd, their, their manager, who I already knew, she was like, Todd's over in the restaurant having lunch. Why don't you go talk to him about it? So I was like, okay, I will. <laughs> so I go into the restaurant, and uh, I see Todd, and I wave him over, and we sit down, and he's got like this big wooden box in front of him, which is what they had in those days for cell phones. Oh, <laughs> uh, Yeah. Oh my God! I think I think back on those days, and everything was so different from it, the way it is now technologically. And so, you know, I sat down with Todd, and we chit chatted, and I was like, "Yeah, I, I'd like to work with Lemmy on an autobiography. You really, should be doing one, you know?" Because at the time, Lemmy at the time was in his like uh, he was uh, like fifty-ish or something like that, and uh, it was it, I felt like it was time for him to do something like that. And so Todd was like, yeah, okay, I'll put you guys together and uh, you see how it works out. And if it works out, let's just go ahead and do it. And so that's what I did. I went over to, uh, I went over to Lemmy's apartment in, uh, in West Hollywood, his famous, his famous apartment, walking distance from the rainbow. Oh yeah. And uh, yeah, we, yeah, we set up an appointment. I, I went, I went in there I with my tape recorder. We sat down and he showed me some of what he had before because I was not the first person to try to do an autobiography with him. He had had several attempts before, so I looked over what he had already and like, you know, sort of like in, in what is, you know, like there was like a sort of um, outline of um, his history musically and stuff. And uh, so, you know, we just uh, did an interview and I, uh, I forget what the interview was about now, because um, I think I started it off by like, uh, you know, because the whole thing is when you're doing a book like that, you need a you need the first like introduction or first chapter to really grab you. Yeah. And so I think that's what we worked on first, because uh, I felt like, you know, that would be a good start anyway. So um, so we did that. And uh, so I went home and I transcribed the uh, transcribed the interview because that's what you did in those days. And as a matter of fact, Lemmy was so hard to understand. I'm not even sure if we could do it electronically anymore. Right. Yeah, I may not understand what he's saying. Yeah. So I, I actually Hand, hand transcribed all you know typed in all of um all the all 37 interviews I wound up doing with him how hands-on was he throughout the process or did he give you all of his wisdom and then you put it together or how how was the uh part to shape it because that's got to be one of the most difficult aspects of it well, the whole thing about Lemmy was his personality you know and the way he like talks about 
things and tell stories and everything. So the important thing to me was um, to really have the book feel like he's talking to you. And so I do the I do the interviews, I transcribe them, and then I would like a organize everything and just like you know make everything really work together so that it sounded like him talking and without all the extraneous sort of stuff although it just he did have a tendency to sort of digress and go you know switch subjects and stuff but we worked that we sort of wove that into the uh in into uh the book and so i would type up what i thought was you know would you know, be good. And then we, we, we started that way with the first, you know, the first time we interviewed and everything was like that from then on. I just went home, worked up a chapter. I faxed it to him uh-huh. and then he would uh, write, you know, scribble his corrections all over it and fax it back. And so then I would like, you know, put it in the corrections and then we keep on moving on. And that's how, that's how it went. And the hardest part of doing the book with Lemmy was that was well it was basically his schedule because Lemmy's life consisted of three things recording you know writing and recording songs mm-hmm. being on tour hanging out with chicks you know and doing <laughs> right. yeah you know during his downtime because that's you know that that was just his life and I in he had to squeeze me in there somehow you know and so I just um, had to sort of keep on him about like you know, getting together with him sometimes. I mean, like when he was in town and he was, uh, you know, between tours and, you know, not and not working on an album. You know, it just a lot of times like he'd be I'd interview him. Then he'd go, call me tomorrow. We'll get together again. I call him the next day and, you know, no, you know, his answering machine to be on. Or it's like, yeah, I'd leave and um, his or, or I'd be interviewing him. And like there'd be a knock on a door on the door, and his girl would come over, and uh, you know he's like, okay, I'll you know, call me tomorrow, call me day after tomorrow, whatever. And I would call him, and there'd be no answer. I mean, obviously he was just otherwise engaged. So I just had to keep on and on him until we were done, basically. Yeah, well, you have to have that perseverance to see it through. Which is, yeah, was there a deadline or anything, or did you write the book before you had a publisher? We started it before we had a publisher, and uh, and once we um, actually um, once we had a publisher, um, then uh, you know they they got the publisher before um, I knew anything about it. I let, first thing I heard was the publisher calling, you know, Simon and Schuster, like contacting me and saying, uh, "Well, we want the book," and I was like, "Nobody told me." Oh, <laughs> I was wow. like, "Okay." Yeah, but um, they, uh, um, yeah, we worked on it for several years without um, without a publishing contract and without a deadline. And I was probably just as well because, you know, I get the feeling Lemmy probably is at his best with, or he was at his best without a deadline. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, as I was reading it, I was kind of surprised to see how into astrology Lemmy was. Now, was there anything surprising about him that you discovered that we may not know or that surprised you once you got to know him? Uh, well, you know, you got to realize as far as the astrology thing goes, he's a child of the 60s. You know, he's uh-huh. like, you know, he's, he's and, and he was in Hawkwin. So, you know, they, he always was sort of surrounded by like, you know, that sort of 60s mystical sort of thing. So, of course, he would know about it. 
the thing that actually struck me the most and um he probably really wouldn't want to like you know talk too much about it because Lumi wanted to be wanted to be seen as like you know macho and vulnerable like nothing ever gets to him he was desperately in love with the girl that died in the 60s oh yeah i mean he dedicated the book yeah he dedicated the book to her which i didn't realize he was going to do and um yeah she was basically the love of his life and um yeah i mean it was it was really devastating to him and uh you know even though he just sort of like didn't really like talk about about it in those terms and emotional terms and stuff it it was obvious that it really had an effect on his on him and his life and everything yeah well, it seems like women um you know were important to him not just because of the the rock star reasons but that he was raised by his mom and his grandma and you know he worked yeah. with on this book which is i think it's it's really great to kind of see that yeah. other side of him too yeah. And yeah, and he's always respected women, um, women performers a whole lot. I mean, he loved Wendy O. Williams. And oh, yeah. In girls school, he really brought yeah, them up. School. And yeah, I thought that yeah. was a good part of the story too. see kind of the yeah. different side of him. Yeah, he's he's always been a really big supporter of uh, female musicians. Uh, oh, yeah. And it's like, you remember, he like he mentioned, uh, you know, being around Chrissy Hine back in, you know, back when she was uh, an aspiring musician too. That kind of leads into my next yeah. question, which I don't know if you know the answer to this since it was, uh, I guess it was Simon and Schuster that was the publisher that may have led this, but it's kind of weird that they have a female narrator on the audio book of White Line Fever. And uh, I saw like uh, the reviews were like, why did they pick a female narrator? So do you know why? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I, I, as a matter of fact, I, I forgot. I was gonna look. I was gonna look up the audiobook version and see what. Uh, see if they're you know, they say who the woman is narrating. That is so strange because it's in. Yeah. He's telling his story, and it's yeah. a, a woman reading it. Yeah, I, I don't. I really don't know. Um, that's not something that I was privy to. I didn't even think about the audiobook version. Yeah, it would have been great to have him do it um, yeah. before he passed. But yeah, I can't believe that it's been 21 years since the book came out. And what Lemmy was talking about throughout the prose, which I thought was interesting, was the political correctness that was happening in the 80s and 90s. And yeah. I'm wondering, do you think he would still write the same book today? And how do you think it would be perceived if it came out now? He, he would write the exact same book. Trust me. <laughs> I had a feeling you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah. And he would not care how it was received because it was just, uh, he was a big believer in telling it as it is and as it was. And uh, he had very little patience with people that tried to, uh, you know, try to sort of like, you know, sugarcoat things or be polite or nice about stuff. And it was really funny. Um, I actually have a really funny story about him because he's actually um, for Lemmy and having like this cluttered sort of uh, crazy apartment that he lived in. He was actually a very nice host. I mean, it's like, you know, he offered me some like, you know, wild turkey. Usually I wouldn't have anything to drink. But one time he <laughs> offered me a hamburger. 
So he offered oh, wow. he offered me a hamburger, and I said, uh, "No, thank you. I don't like red meat because I hadn't eaten red. I stopped eating red meat in mid '80s." And he was like, "Looks at me, and goes, why?" And I look at him, I go, "Because I don't like the taste of it." And he's going, "Good, because that's the only excuse I'll accept. I don't like those people that just think that animals are too cute and won't eat them. That's like <laughs> bullshit." Wow. and it's true that's the reason why i i don't i stopped eating red meat because i just i was like i don't really like it so i'm not going to eat it anymore <laughs> that kind of uh brings me back to your animal uh books and i mm-hmm. used to do animal rescue myself um and i still have pets and i love animals and um yeah. as i mentioned at the top of the show a lot of your books are about cats and cat rescue so um how did that come about and do you have any upcoming books in the works on that subject or something different um actually not really at the moment uh it just how that came about was it came about through the blog that that i started with uh, the predecessor to my cat now summer uh and uh this little blog was sort of written through the cat's point of view about her life and what happens stuff that happens in her life and at the time I was I was writing I I had a fitness website and I had um and I was writing for the I was writing about silent film uh for the all movie guide and as a matter of fact if you look in the all movie guide at some of the obscure silent synopses I wrote a lot of those and so I was doing that kind of work and doing the occasional like music uh music work writing assignment and stuff and I just started the cat blog for fun you know because you know I had a cat and I write and why not and it sort of took on a life of its own and I'm a big reader so I read up a whole bunch about cats and cat behavior and everything and I started integrating that into the blog and uh, because the whole reason why people have problems with their cats is that uh, they they don't Think about what their cat's going through. They just think about their own problems. Oh, my cat's peeing here. How do I make him stop? Other than like, you know, my cat's peeing here. Why is he doing that? What's wrong with him that he's doing that? You know, and looking at it from that point of view. So that's why I started writing about things from a cat's point of view. It's ridiculous. I have like this multifaceted, like, you know, um completely this disjointed career path because one thing I do is I do a lot of videos before I was a rock journalist I was an assistant film editor and I went to film school and everything wow so it's all coming back around yeah I mean I was the supervising assistant film editor on Repo Man way at the beginning of my uh career many careers but yeah so I like you know so all all of that knowledge I gained uh, was transitioning from like you know being a fledgling editor um you know film editor being a rock writer was uh, me utilizing that and, uh, you know, making these TikToks and Instagram reels with Summer. And um, it was fun. I get to photograph her. And uh, and she's an interesting cat because um, I take her all over the place. I take her to pet stores. We do therapy uh, cat visits um, at least three times a month and uh, write about those. And I, you know, share about those on video on um, TikToks and stuff. What is the um, TikTok and Instagram for her? Oh, the TikTok um, for her is Summer Samba, all one word. Uh huh. And uh, the Instagram is uh, Summer's Travels. And the and her blog is SparkableCat.com. Oh, well, I'd love to see you write another book. 
Yeah, I'd love to, too. And I keep on coming up with ideas for books and novels and stuff. And nothing's quite stuck that I you know, want to, uh, that, that I've really wanted to go the distance for. Because I have a couple of ideas for, like, novels that would be really fun. And one of them is, um, music. actually, two of them are music-oriented, except that one of them, one of them's a sci-fi one that's sort of music-oriented. And the other one is um, all about, like, a, you know, it's it's sort of like autobiographical, except it's written through the point of view of the cat that I had at the time. Yeah, I <laughs> mean, you really have so funny. many ideas and talent. Yeah. So, yeah, I think yeah. it'll happen. Yeah, I'm sure it'll happen. And and like, you know, I also have like from from the 80s, I have I have like, oh, man, I think four, four um, big, um, like, was a big notebooks full of black and white negatives and a big box full of uh, color slides from all the photos I took in those days. And I need to go through them. People keep on wanting stuff and I haven't gotten around to it yet. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that would be great too, yeah. to put that into a book or something. Um, well, yeah. we're kind of running, the... running low on time, but I want to ask <laughs> you my standard closing question. And I'm really curious to know what your answer is on this one. What is your own personal rock and roll nightmare, Janice? I will tell you, be <laughs> careful. It, it boils down to this. Be careful of what you wish for, because it may come true. And that's all I will say. Hmm. All right. Intriguing. I like it. <laughs> well, thank you, Janice, for being on the show. It was really a pleasure to talk to you and learn more about your background and what's coming up. Yeah, great. Well, it's great talking to you. And I'll probably give you some answers since you totally were not expecting. <laughs> it's all good. Thank you. Sure. You're welcome. All right. Bye, Janice. Bye. This concludes another episode of the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Remember, there's a book series too. All the books are available in paperback, ebook, and audio via Amazon or the Rock and Roll Nightmares website. That's R O C K N R O L L Nightmares.com. Our official theme song is She's Out for Blood by Fuzzbuster, founded by Lars Cabot. Thank you for listening. We're